Welcome everybody to the Dias Cast Podcast. We are going to be doing something a little bit different this week. We are indulging one of our fans with some basic questions because we thought this would be useful for everybody who is brand new to D&D. We're going to have Elaine Vereshko here. She is brand new to D&D. So we are going to get her to stand in for all of the those out there who are listening, who have no idea what we're talking about when we're doing the podcast. Welcome, Elaine. Welcome to the Diaz Cat Podcast, table talk number three. Woo! Yes, in a way we are indulging, but also we are very grateful for someone joining us on a weekend morning. Good Lord. <laughs> we're kind of indulging ourselves here. That was yeah. what I was going to say. To just talk, talk <laughs> basics. Ooh, Ooh, D&D. Let's talk about it. Yeah, you're Ooh. featuring yourselves. It's amazing. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. So, Elaine, you are uh, good friends with Emma. Or, I am. And you've been... Or, uh, or not. Uh, Curious. Why don't you tell us about your situation what, and what prompted some of the questions you, you, you posted to Emma sure. when you first heard her giving her sword impersonations? So, um, I, as a, as a starting off, I don't know anything about D&D. I know that it exists. I know that many people play it. Um, I know that actually Emma is working with another one of our friends, uh, Kunji Ikeda, to make a show about it. Um, and I recently did a residency at, um, Forest Lawn High School and all the kids were talking about it and they were all like, and they, actually even the show that we were making masks for was a D and D show. And I was just confused. I was so confused. <laughs> it's and then, hot right now. <laughs> it is strangely hot. I hear about it everywhere. And I don't know if that's maybe because of COVID or just like the re-fantasy kind of people getting back into like playing over like distances. I don't know, but everyone's into it. And I am so busy these days that I do not have time to learn uh, quickly. Like I, I just don't have time to sort of uh, bring it into my life. And so I just wanted to ask questions because it seems like a game that everybody understands, but there's no rule book. There's no board. There's no pieces. There's no, like, it's, I don't understand how everybody understands the same thing where it seems like there's nothing regulating it. <laughs> I mean, there are so many rule books. But I, are... no, I, <laughs> I do love this. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Um, and yeah. so then I saw Emma posting about being on this podcast and I just openly said, it's like, I would just love to almost like have a D and D for dummies and to understand just a quick understanding of what is it that people are playing? How is it that they are engaging? And how do you play a game that has no game board, like game board? Yeah. Or like, a mm -hmm. anything uh, connecting it, I suppose. <laughs> I think you came to the right place. This oh is D and D for dummies. I'm so jazzed. <laughs> we are we are dummies, and that's, we are dummies. Yeah, and we play D and D. So yeah, this excites me so much. Just <laughs> wow, wow! I'm so yeah. I, I have a feeling this is a topic that we could talk about pretty much uh, all day. Kevin, do you want to just talk about your big tome of rules? I feel like you're the one that has to keep the most in your head. Should we introduce the rest of us for this? Oh, I don't know. I guess they know us. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Why don't you start off, Griffin? I'm Griffin. 
Excellent. Diego. <laughs> great, great introduction. <laughs> I'm Diego. I play Chisk in the Dice Cast. Emma. I'm Emma. I play Templar's Verge in the Dias Cast. Uh, and Griffin plays. Uh, <laughs> it's unclear yeah. who I play. Kevin Cork's our DM. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> All right. So the DM, let's start with that. DM stands for Dungeon Master. It's back when D&D was first started. Uh, just to give you a little bit of history. Uh-huh. D&D was created as a fantasy supplement for wargaming back in like, someone's going to jump in, but I think around 73, 75, something like that. I think it's coming up on its 50th anniversary. So yeah, it would be 73. And uh, it was designed originally to be a supplement to, you know, the old-fashioned war games where people would create a bunch of miniatures and reenact Napoleon's battles and World War II and all that kind of stuff. And it was created as a fantasy supplement that you could add onto your game. And so you had, like, three or four really basic characters. You had, I think it was a wizard, a fighter, a uh, thief, actually, and a Actually, the original term, I think, was um, magic man. It was magic something user. else. It wasn't wizard. It was yet. magic man. No, no, it was, it was magic user. Oh, it, magic, fighting magic. man, fighting man, oh, magic no. user. Yes, it was fighting <laughs> oh man. I will fight you, Kevin. I will fighting man you. <laughs> uh, uh, you know whatever. I've learned never to go back, never to go up against your trivia. So, all right, it was fighting man. <laughs> Elaine wasn't really fighting. Man. <laughs> I'm looking it up. Okay, so where it has evolved over sort of five generations is into being much more of a boardless, uh, dice-driven storytelling game. So everyone creates a character. They have various stats and abilities and things that they can do. And and the characters are wide-ranging and they get wide ranging with every or wider ranging with every new supplement or rule book that gets put out there but based effectively simply you can play a fighting man also known as a fighter you can play a knight you can play a paladin you can play a wizard you can play a sorcerer you can play a thief you can play a bard you can play a huge variety of different types of uh people with all sorts of different races and uh, basically, you and a bunch of friends go on an adventure organized and created or improvised by the, the DM. A way that I like to translate to all my theater friends is like it's pretty much just structured improv. It turns – I think there was – I would say even before 5th edition, there was a weird kind of like stigma around it. And then when you get your friends to like sit around the table and do it, it just turns into like – it starts off with like just – a bits with you and your friend and then like the jokes kind of start turning into a real story and then eventually you actually start to feel sad when that npc dies because he was your favorite and like you start to trick your friends who were kind of (laughs) dissing on the game to be like oh no galdriel i'll miss him forever (laughs) like there's it's i think i think tricking people into role playing is is very funny it really is long form improv within Mm -hmm. the the squares of Rules, which I, I mean, I love because I'm always afraid of improv in a way, but I love having something to sort of go, okay, well, I have this pathway that I can follow or not. I can, you know, either go straight down the road that is set out for me by my character sheet, or I can throw it out the, out the window and not do things that I'm good at by the book, you know? Yeah. It's really fun to sort of play within the, the bonds of the, of the game. Diego, what would you add to that? 
Uh, well, uh, what I was going to say is that I was actually one of those people who absolutely detested the idea of D&D before I started playing. And when my friends introduced it to me, they were like, you're an actor. You're like my non-actor friends are like, you're an actor. You're going to love this. We're going to sit at the table and pretend to be elves for three hours. And I was like, that sounds like the stupidest thing I would ever do with my time. And (laughs) they were like, just try it once. And then I sat down at the table and I was like, this is amazing. This like it just sucks you into the world immediately. You just start pretending and like again, long form improv. And I'm also I'm also like Emma that I was like terrified of of this kind of stuff. I still am a little bit, but like it, it feels different when you're at a table or through a webcam with your friends, you know, that you know and love and, and start telling little silly stories that eventually turn into like some really touching stories sometimes. I also think one of the largest reasons that it's gotten so hot right now is like, well, for two reasons. One, I think, yeah, I think COVID had a little bit to do with it just in terms of like the fact that the game can can be digitized. Um, so there's like a whole bunch of like podcasts and even a few video streaming shows like just about people playing a D&D game. And, so, and they're, they're varying budget levels. Like to your point about the board game and the pieces, there are some shows that like print out a whole map and you have your little guy and you can move your guy around. We don't do that because we're on like an audio format and that wouldn't be good radio. So we have to kind of use that imagery to bring people into the podcast without being like, just picture my guy. Can I, can I move there? If I go behind him over there, over here. (laughs) But also, and I can only, I can only speak to fifth edition, but I've heard rumblings of previous editions that this one is way more user-friendly, way easier and way more intuitive. If you go back to even like third or fourth edition, there was like Thaco two hit armor class zero, which was like a bad amount of math. Like it was we don't a need really, to talk about really that here. No. Yeah, crunchy, crunchy, <laughs> bad number game. And it's gotten a lot easier, I think. And and more focused on like the role playing aspect yeah. too. More about the storytelling. I've been playing for, I think, probably four or five years now. And I've never read the Dungeon Master's Guide. And I can confidently DM this game. You know, um, (laughs) there is a lot of rules out there technically. And you could play that way. But you can also, 5th edition is very accessible. Like once you have a basic understanding of like what the goal is and how to tell a story, which I think we all do. Yeah, there they are. Diego's holding up (laughs) all the books right now. For described okay. audio, Diego is holding up four huge <laughs> four of my books. So they actually release a book explaining each edition. Like someone who who's doing that? Who creates these books? <laughs> who did I don't know. Let's look around. Who who is doing that? <laughs> well, our our favorite one that's doing that is Cobold Press. Ooh. But many people de- it came out originally with a group called TSR. Uh, which has been bought by someone else, bought by someone else, eventually bought by Wizards of the Coast, which has since been bought by Hasbro. So it's all it's all corporate now. The game property is owned by Hasbro. Yeah. Um, but, you know, to a certain extent, don't tell Wizards, but you don't really need to own anything in order to play the game. That's what I've heard, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a lot of people when they they will uh, either make up their own variations on rules once they have the grounding once they have the basics and actually Elaine the the basics are a free download from the uh, whichever D and D website it is 
What is the right, correct D&D D- official website? Uh, D&D Beyond. You can get the, the basic rules free from Wizards of the Coast and D&D Beyond. Um, D&D Beyond is a digital asset where the whole player's handbook has been digitized. So you don't have to like pen and paper it anymore, which is the old way we used to build character sheets. But now everything is available to just build digitally. It's super user-friendly. It sort of takes you on a flow chart way of building a character and it's uh, really accessible. It really changed the way I think a lot of people built characters once that was reasonably available. We, right. we have a lot to say about the game. So I think you you can stop us when you have questions because oh. there's well, a lot of What are my questions? Because uh, I'm surprised to know that there's books because to my understanding, it was just completely fabricated by everybody. Mm-hmm. But when people describe to me, especially the, the DM role, the dungeon master, right? That role seems to have an ungodly amount of power. And so when people explain to me the game, I'm like, well, what is the... What is preventing this godlike DM from uh, completely doing whatever they want, you know, favoritizing their favorite players or, you know, being mean to who they don't <laughs> or making up um, concepts and ideas that uh, maybe uh, people What do you mean prevent? Like. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> there's nothing preventing Kevin. Yeah. So I'm wondering, yeah, I, I my big question is about this DM role. How How is it regulated? And then how do people in the group feel um, if, the, uh, like, you know, if they like that person or they don't like that person, can that role switch? Do, do you have feedback systems? I don't know how it works. <laughs> common card questions, yeah. Those are great questions. Um in terms, it's it's basically a group of people getting together to play. Um, the DM has sort of organized the adventure, but uh, uh, that sort of misleads it. What what a DM does is creates a background for a story to unfold, and they will have a basic outline or they could have a published outline. Like there are certainly thousands, literally thousands of adventures you can get that you can buy, download, you know, and they range from like $50 to $2. People have written them up. And when you get that adventure, it becomes the story you're going to tell. But you are not limited to this adventure because first of all, the players don't know the adventure, so they're going to react the way they think their characters would or the way they want to, which then takes the story off the rails. And that is part of the joy of it, because it's not really the DM writing the adventure. It's the DM laying the groundwork for the group to write the story. One of the things that I, I, I've written about like a while ago is one of the things that really attracts me to D&D is this idea of stepping back from even ironically because we're using a lot of technology we actually you're stepping away from sort of the pre-packaged ideas of entertainment and getting back into a much more a much more basic a much more primitive communal storytelling using the structure of D&D. And when I say structure, what it is, is it's a series of charts and percentages, and those vary for each individual player. So um, very simplistically, or to give you a really simple example, if Griffin's character decides that they want to uh, walk a tightrope, I would assign a percentage chance, uh, ability to be able to do that, 
or at least a, a, a dice roll that, that Griffin's character has to make to be able to walk that tightrope. Maybe it's it's three feet off the ground and very easy. Maybe it's overtop Niagara Falls, so it's slippery and there's lots of wind. So there's varying degrees of difficulty around that, that tightrope. Griffin's character has some abilities that may help or hinder. So in the game, for example, uh, Gideon, Griffin's character, is very dexterous. So he has better chance of walking that tightrope than Diego's character, Chisk, who is not very dexterous. As a matter of fact, we can count on Diego that way. To fail almost every single time. <laughs> but <laughs> the thing, too, is the, the DM doesn't isn't restrained by anything to be reasonable. Like they really have all the decisions to make on their own. And sometimes you get uh, dungeon masters that you really don't vibe with. Like you don't connect on playing style. Um, and so in that case, you kind of have a choice to make. How bad do you want to play D and D that you stick with this person? You, you don't like the game as much, but you're still playing. Or do you just, say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, this isn't, like, the game that I want to be playing, and you figure out a way to communicate that and go somewhere else and find a different group to play with. I think, for me, like, there's a, there's a few, like, game stores around town, or you can go to, like, a convention, and you can kind of sit down with a group of strangers and just play the game, like, just outright. You haven't met them before these four hours, and you may never see them again in your life. And uh, I think there's a lot of great value to conventions like that. Personally, that's not my style. I, I, I like playing the game for the people that I'm playing with. Um, and specifically the DM, right? Because as, as kind of as you said, the, the power, uh, given to the DM is very disproportionate, but also on the reverse end, so is the workload. We have to know like our characters and then the DM has to know everybody else and how to incorporate all the things we want to do. Uh, so the DM usually preps anywhere between like four to six hours before a session so that they know what is going to maybe happen that session, or they have to be quick enough on their feet to be like, Oh, you're not going into the castle that I thought you were going to go into. Okay. Uh, yeah, sure. We can go to the shopping mall. Ah, crap. Great. And then like make up all that stuff. So the DM on the spot also potentially has to completely improvise a brand new plot that they don't have control over. I would say, like, more often than not. Oh, yeah, Kevin, what, what percentage of the podcast have you improvised so far? <laughs> um, as I've gotten more experienced uh, DMing, I actually spend less time prepping the adventure I have in mind and more sort of, you know, I'll come up with, for an hour game, for example, I'll come up with, like, four plot points that will sort of drive the story forward, how the characters reach those plot points. And the plot point could be as simple as you discover that uh, the woman you thought was the maid is actually the princess. Or you learn from the cobbler that uh, his wife was taken away by the fairies two years ago. And where that cobbler ends up happening in the in the course of the adventure uh, becomes less important than you just want them to drive. You just want to sort of drive that story forward. And then, honestly, what will happen is the 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 players uh, through accident or improv will come up with some idea that's better than the one I had or the one that was published, 
and I will start to sculpt the adventure around their idea. And they, they, of course, are totally charmed because they think they figured it out. They didn't realize they wrote it. Well, that's neat. I have a question that's going to kind of lead into a different topic of a question. So I was talking to a person who was a DM, and they were expressing that they felt really bad because in the last uh, Dungeons & Dragons session that he did had done with his friends, everyone accidentally died. <laughs> it's like what does that mean? Like, so what you accidentally let all your characters die or somehow your plot line led to everyone dying. But does that mean that all those characters are completely scrapped? Can't you just start them again? And so anyways, I have a lot of questions about how that happened and what does (laughs) death mean in Dungeons and Dragons for a character? I laugh because those are exact same questions that my girlfriend had when I was telling her about my first few games. Yeah. Right. Also, didn't you kill her first game, Diego? Yeah, I did. And now she'll never play again. My God. No, she still loves it. She still loves it. (laughs) Unless your DM is like super malicious, I will usually wager to guess that if your entire party dies, it's usually the player's (laughs) fault. Usually. Sometimes the DM will just be like, here's a huge T-Rex and you're all level one. Yeah. It's like, warning, warning, don't go the here. Yeah. Right. If if a party is starting to like, uh-oh, we need to run away, there's not very many DMs that'll be like, this monster pursues you until it kills every single one. You know what I mean? Like, there's, it's, it is collective storytelling and if there's no players, the story ends. As for me... I guess it depends how long like I've been playing with a character. If a character dies, part of me's for sure sad. And part of me's kind of like, oh, I get to roll up a new character. I can be a new thing and new abilities. Hmm, I can be a whole other person. As well, especially in a show like this in kind of a performative context, if you're feeling a little like unsure about your improv or your role playing or like what you want in the world or what drives you, a character death of one of your friends is very easy acting fodder. So a, a couple of things I would say around that. I, I never want a character to die through like or to die through a bad dice roll. If the dice, I don't want the dice to dictate the story. I want the character to choose. Like I want the character to have a heroic death <laughs> or at least a tragic death. I don't want them to have a pointless uh, ancillary death accidental yeah like if if the the characters are uh, I, I mean it's all a matter of degree right so if if the characters start to die first of all there's lots of steps between living and dead there's there's you know there's various degrees of hurt and coma and unconscious and you know at death's door uh, but if, if characters are starting to fall because they've gone unconscious because they've taken too much damage then I will start to tweak the fight or I will have that cobbler show up and it turned out it was some sort of avenging knight or I'll have something, you know, uh, or maybe they get taken prisoner or the the possibilities are literally endless in terms of avoiding uh, having a character die. That being said, you can't let the players think that they can never die because then they get, first of all, it takes away all the, it takes away all the stakes. And part of the joy of the game is that moment of not knowing what's going to happen. 
My, literally one of my favorite moments is when people are just sort of paralyzed looking around. They don't want to touch anything or walk anywhere or do anything. So they spend about 20 minutes talking about the various things that they could do. And then their brains, I can, I can feel their brains all kick into overdrive as they all start to think about their abilities and the items they're carrying with them. And do they have something they could do and all this kind of stuff. So it's triggering all sorts of authentic responses in the player, not, not just in the character, but in, in the player itself. And that's is what adds the richness. So, yeah, I, I mean, if, if, you know, there is a volcano there and the characters decide they can all just dive face first into the lava, then yes, you need to find smarter players. <laughs> yeah. Part of the DM's job, especially like, especially with new players is teaching about consequences like you can do anything in this game but you kind of have to um you gotta you gotta take your take your lumps and learn what it means to to live in this world right and part of that is testing boundaries just like any new baby (laughs) yeah one of my one of my favorite pc death moments i've died twice in this game um once we had a almost like tpk which stands for total party kill we were i think maybe level three and uh, we were fighting a bunch of were-rats. We were very much over in over our heads, and we didn't get the signals. And the DM didn't let up on us. It was like, you're in it. You started this fight, you know? Um, and there, like, we ended up in, in a buttload of debt because, uh, <laughs> yes, we, basically, we were all killed. One of our PCs ran away, managed to escape and alert the authorities and called some temple to revive us. And they did that. But we owe them money to this day. We've been playing that campaign for three years, and we still owe them money. So, you know, we learned that, uh, yeah, you can cheat death, but it's expensive. <laughs> is that is that a Kevin game? No. Oh, a were rat is a Kevin Cork staple. <laughs> yeah. I mean, classic, oh, classic enemy, right? Yeah. But, so yeah. were rat is a werewolf type character, but it's a were rat instead. So they turn into rats <laughs> rather than wolves. Oh, so th- so it's funny. I have two different questions, but I'm, since we're talking about characters, um, I, so there is a book of characters that you can pull from that are c- considered contained within the D and D universe, right? Because someone showed me a coloring book once, so they were like, "Oh, this is a D and D coloring book," and then I was flipping through. I'm like, "Oh, so these are all characters that you can be," and then I pointed at one, and I was like, "I would be this person," and it was like a floating eyeball, and they were like, "You can't be that one," and I was like. I don't get it. <laughs> Why not? I mean, right. brass tacks, it's divided into, in like D&D talk, races and classes. And essentially every character is a race and a class. So your race is like your, I don't love that word personally. I think D&D can do better on their nomenclature, but we'll call it your, your, <laughs> your race is like your ancestry, the kind of creature you are. And then your class is like your job. Oh, so and what of all these levels, you guys keep talking about levels. So what is a level and how does one um, obtain higher levels through like, what does it mean to level up? Um, so basically, it comes down to the DM again. There are two main ways where a DM can level up your players. You can choose to go uh, the experience points uh, option, which is basically a certain monster will have a, a, a number of experience points that it gives, gives in quotations, 
that it gives the players once they kill it. So for example, I don't, I, and I don't know the actual numbers, but if you kill a troll, it'll give you 500 experience points. And so you have certain limits of what, what the, or thresholds, I, sh- I should say, of where the levels lie. So you need a thousand points to level up to level two from level one. So you need to kill two trolls, for example, this, and, you know, numbers out of my head, but that's one way you can do it. And then the other way is by milestones, which essentially that's just kind of at the DMs, like imagination where they, where they level you up. It depends on points throughout the story or in our case, <laughs> depending on how many, uh, episodes we released. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's, there's a variety of different styles of which the DM can be like, okay, you're, you level up now because of XYZ, you know? And so what it's trying to do is trying to quantify the experience you would get as you went through these adventures. It's, it's mathematically trying to crystallize it. So uh, 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 to use something like the Lord of the Rings analogy, if you think of the Hobbit right when it was sitting in his house versus the Hobbit right at the end of the Lord of the Rings, all the things that they went through has made them probably better fighters, braver, more experienced, that kind of stuff. So what with D&D, uh, it's a very mechanical progression. And what happens is if you move from being a second level fighter to a third level fighter, you get certain new abilities. Or if you become a fourth level wizard or a fifth level wizard from fourth, you get brand new spells or more powerful spells, or you get to cast more spells more often. So there's these, uh, and, and again, that stretches across all the different classes and it's, and also you get tougher, you get harder to kill, you get more, you know, you can improve your abilities. So you're more dexterous or you're stronger or you're smarter. So it's to sort of reflect the fact that you start off sort of roughly the equivalent of a teenager and end up as Gandalf. <laughs> Every teenager turns into Gandalf. Holy I wish I turned into Gandalf. And it's it goes up Gandalf to level 20. Phase. It's oh, 1 20? to 20. Yeah. Oh, do you guys know anyone who's a level 20? <laughs> Super rare to get to level 20. Most campaigns only really go to level 10. At, and then very few go beyond that. And my highest level character right now is a level 16. Whoa. That's that one campaign where we all died. I, um, I got to level 20 once, but it was, uh, but, and it gets, it gets kind of bonkers at that point. Like yeah. We, we, we had level 20 and we had a whole bunch of like very cool items and we were fighting the equivalent of like gods. Like when you're level 20, there's the theory that like once you reach level 20 the game is kind of over because it's hard to find anything that's like a challenge like even the most like scary high level monsters if there's three or four party members that are level 20 you can usually beat it like there's you just get high high power stuff so if you're a level 20 let's say or as your character is expanding you must have to create like a quite a comprehensive spreadsheet of memories and details and of t- right cuz i would never re- so does each of you have like a a document that t- reminds you? Oh, there's a book. <laughs> so we all take notes, usually Diego campaign notes, and then there's a character sheet which comes from the game itself, which like has a standard format that tells you all your abilities. That's what Griffin's holding up there. Oh, so it's got everything on there that you need, and that's available digital and analog, and you can sort of yeah, it tells mm-hmm. you everything about yourself. It takes some 
practice to learn how to read it. I'd say that's a bit of a hurdle to get over mm-hmm. when you're starting to play. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've done that's worked really well for like brand new people is to do effectively what you had talked about, Elaine, where you don't ask somebody to roll up a character and we'll get into that, what that means. It's I offer them a selection of archetypes. So I will say, here's a knight, here's a wizard, here's a thief, here's a a monk. And we can tweak it them we can tweak them actually quite a bit, but for people who are brand new, being able to have the clear image of what a wizard is in their head makes it easier cuz one of the online personalities, I think I forget who, said it's really fun to have a character. If you're brand new, it's really not fun to roll up a character. Because there's so many variables. And and what I find is if you if you hand them a pre-created character and they get into the game, then they can go back later and tweak that character or start from scratch and start over. And, you know, for a lot of people, once they get into it, they start creating characters just to have some, just to see what the new abilities are. Because there's so many variables with so many different races and so many different classes, this There'd be literally hundreds of various combinations. So you could be a barbarian, but you could be a halfling barbarian, or you could be an orc barbarian, or you could be a, a robotic barbarian. There's all, all these different v- variations. So uh, the reason that you couldn't play the round ball creature with all the eyes on its head is because it's simply cool. too powerful a character to start or a a personality too powerful a monster simplistically so it would give you unfair advantage in the game when wouldn't actually be very much fun for you because you would just roll around blasting everything and can you play a monster or do you have to play more of what sounds like human-like characters well that's uh, an ongoing debate there's there's many uh sort of traditional monster characters that make perfectly good races so something like a, a troll or an orc, you know, when you think of those sort of stereotypes, um, there's lots of people who will play those kinds of things. Even goblins, kobolds, like little, lots of classic D&D monsters um, are playable races now. Bugbears. Uh, minotaurs. Minotaurs. Yeah. There's a few forms of like the popular media that uh, do something which is called homebrewing. Which is really just like making up something full cloth, like not from the book. Um, I've seen a few people play. Uh, I think what you're describing is a beholder, which is just a big floating eye thing. Yeah, it was- uh, I, yeah, totally. And I have a few buddies who will be like, for sure, your character can look like that, but you'll have the abilities of a halfling. Uh-huh. So, so there's there's yep. ways to, if you really want to play a thing with floating eyes. That's fine. You just can't have all the cool spells that mm. the real floating eyes can, or else this game is broken. Yeah, a beholder is a big monster. I yeah. mean, it's it's like a level you would fight it at level eight or nine, probably. It's a big boy. So, so I, I love that instinct. I want to be yeah. that. I want to be the beholder. But actually, that's an excellent point, Griffin. You could. I mean, the game is flexible enough that the DM should say, "Okay, well, let's work with you. Let's let's." Take a, a beholder and unpower it to the point where it would be the equivalent of a first level character. Yeah. A baby beholder, as it were. Yeah. Right? It'll be like a beholder with one eye and one little tentacle eye. <laughs> yeah. One stalk. <laughs> and a pacifier. Because yeah. <laughs> the, the large, the, one of the biggest reasons that 
uh, player characters, the people playing the game, can't be a big monster. A, a, a big, big reason is because usually how large the monsters are. Um, there's the different class uh, classes of size. So you can be a small character, a medium character, or a large character. Um, and oftentimes, most of the monsters in the game are classified as large or huge or giant. And that's or overpowering in itself just because, like, uh, if you play a full-size Minotaur, you can just stand in a doorway and none of the monsters can leave. Like, it's that kind of stuff. There's a whole theory that a lot of D&D adventures are made for medium-sized players. So I'm really curious about what was mentioned um, Keep uh, exploring is what does it mean to roll a character? So does that mean that like I I'm not I've never heard actually that I thought people just picked like oh I'm going to be uh, a sorceress and then that's kind of what you did. So what does it mean to roll a character? Does it come from ability score rolls? I have to I think folks. So, yeah. I think yeah, that's where the term be. comes from. So uh ability score rolls just to explain what I just said. Every character has six abilities: strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. And basically, your whole being is broken down into six traits. Just like real life. Just like yeah. real life. Three uh, mental and three physical abilities. Yeah. yeah. So you roll a character by rolling for those stats. Um, yeah. How do... Okay. I'm not doing a good job. Somebody else take it away. It, no, no, no. It's, yeah. So there's a few <laughs> okay. ways to get those numbers. Those like you have... They range from 1 to 20 in the same way that like a particular D20 does. And there's a few ways to get those numbers to figure out how strong you are, how dexterous you are, how charming you are. Um, sometimes you can just like pick numbers. It's what's called the standard array. So you can have like 115, 112, 19, that kind of stuff. My preferred method, and I think the funner method, is you take four D6, which are just like regular dice, and you roll them. And then from that, you get to pick... Uh, the three highest D6 and use that as one of your ability modifiers. So you can get as high as an 18 or as low as a three. If you're going to be really brutal on yourself, I don't think you yeah. should be. But what I really like about it is it kind of adds that element of chance that kind of makes Dungeons and Dragons what it is mm. right from the beginning. Because it's fun to be good at things but it's also fun to be very, very, very bad at things. Like that just, <laughs> hey. that's what makes the game interesting. If you're good at everything, same kind of thing if you reach level 20. If all the monsters are too easy, whatever. So if your character is too good at anything, like, great, good for you, man. But like, why are you here? It, it also makes for really fun storytelling when you fail at things. Yeah. As you, as the listeners will know, Chisk is notorious for failing at roles D disproportionately and, <laughs> i would say <laughs> like majority but uh but it makes for fun storytelling when you're like you're it's not always you know the the really charismatic uh bar trying to convince someone to sell you something it's also fun to have like the really not good at conversation barbarian try to haggle for you know I don't know, a sword that they're trying to buy. Mm -hmm. Or convince the king that the war's not okay to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, Elaine, to, to continue with that, if a character has 18 at something, they're very good at it. So they get a plus four modifier to all their dice rolls, which increases the chance they're going to succeed. If they have a three at something, they're going to get a minus five to their dice rolls, which in increases the chance they're going to fail at something. And something could be literally anything. 
doing a pull-up, <laughs> buying or convincing somebody of something, trying to hit somebody, trying to climb somewhere, trying to research a spell, all of these things will have uh, a, a chance of success, and those pluses add to that chance of success. Now, just to give you a little more perspective on that, uh, most of the time we will roll a 20-sided dice to determine how appropriate it is. Do you always use the same dice then? Like it always, every time is because Emma also held up a, what a normal size dice. So what, why different types of dice? It's a set of seven usually is the standard that you play with. Oh. A 20, a 12, a 10, an eight, a six, and a four. And then a percentage, which is a bit more complicated. But um, yeah, the D20 is the, it's the, the gold standard dice. It's the one you roll for almost everything. And then you roll the other dice for damage or for buffs or little little bits in here. Yeah. So you would roll a D4, a one die. Show her what D4 is kind of interesting. What it looks like, it's a, oh, it looks yeah. like a pyramid. So you would roll a D4 if you were using a dagger, because it's just a dagger. But if you were using a monster great sword, you might roll a D12. So it gives you a wider range of damage. And, and the character depending on their constitution, start off with a certain level of what are called hit points. And again, it's only meant to sort of track the health, crystallize tracking the health of the character to know if the character is going to live or die or be hurt or be able to continue to do what they want to do. So very to give you a really simple example, if you decided you wanted to be a barbarian, you might start off with 10 hit points. If you were a 20th level barbarian, you might have 250 hit points. So at, at the beginning, you're pretty tentative. You're, you can be easily killed by a rat. A you, gelatinous you, cube. <laughs> all, all sorts of different creatures. But if, uh, so what the dice do is represent sort of the different levels of difficulty and the different levels of damage or the different levels of success. So I would, uh, you know, if you were uh, swinging your sword to try and hit that rat before it killed you, the rat has a certain number that you have to hit. You don't necessarily know what that number is, but you would roll your 20-sider, add your modifiers, and you'd have those all on that sheet, and give me a grand number. So you roll the 20-sider, and you come up with an 8. So in your very first example, you said, oh, no, he rolled a 7. Yeah. That's because he was pretty sure, he or she, whoever it was, was pretty sure they needed to roll a 14 or better to be able to hit this creature. And they rolled a 7, so they effectively just missed hitting the creature. The creature danced out of the way, or they didn't get a good shot on. So that's that's the structured, randomized element I was talking about in terms of the storytelling. Because even if you have a great story to tell... If you fail at it, it adds that element of uncertainty and it adds that element of chance and it adds that element of stakes to the game. Because uh, players will come up with all sorts of cool ideas. The chances of them succeeding vary depending on their abilities, the situation, a whole host of things. What I will do usually as a DM is I'll default to the most fun or the most dramatic the rule of cool. <laughs> uh, will it feel cool? Will it feel fun? 
right? So if if Griffin's character wants to jump on a chandelier to cross the room, like swing across on a chandelier, I'm going to give him a relatively easy chance to do that. First of all, because that's the kind of character he's playing. And second of all, it's way more fun than him just walking across the room. Right. So I'm defaulting to the enter I'm defaulting to the story. And okay, that's really interesting. Thank you. That, that actually gives like a whole different world of context of understanding how there actually is a little bit of like um, regulation or not rules. It doesn't seem like there's rules, but like a way of kind of helping formulate some sort of um, malleable structure, I suppose. Yes. The one thing that's really important is that the world have uh, its have realistic limitations. And that realistic is subjective, but it has to be consistent. Mm. So, you know, if, if I mean, very simple example, if gravity works in that world, it always has to work. You can't decide that it's just not going to work because that wouldn't be fun. Now, there may be areas of the world where gravity doesn't work or it works differently or there's other conditions. But there, again, there has to be a reason for why gravity wouldn't work in this area if you've established that gravity works on the rest of the world. I had a buddy put it once that your your character is Legolas, your character is not Bugs Bunny. Right. So like you could you are at like the peak <laughs> of your your physical condition, but you can't like stretch your arm thirty feet. You know what I mean? <laughs> Michael Jordan. You can try, but there might be consequences. <laughs> One hundred. Yeah. Dislocated. <laughs> roll for dislocated arm shoulder. Right off. <laughs> um. So now I have a question that relates to this word campaign. Because like what Emma just said, she was doing a campaign for three years. I've heard people say that they've been doing campaigns for five years. I've heard people say that their campaign lasted three months. So what does it mean? What does a campaign mean? Campaign doesn't seem to be limited to plot. Like you can do several different challenges and plots within a campaign. And how do you know when a campaign is done? I love this. I love this so much. These are all the questions that we want to talk about all day for our entire lives, and no one's going to let us. <laughs> yeah. This, this is, is our the vice. Best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I will offer a definition of a campaign. We can see where I'm wrong. Um, I think a campaign is the same group of players and DM telling a story in the same world over a set amount of time. And that can be like different arcs inside a campaign. It can be different characters even, but in the same world. Does that seem right, folks? Yeah. 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 yeah I would say everything except the set amount of time. Oh, I meant like over a what, uh, whatever, whatever that yeah, time yeah. is. Yeah. Because it could be, you could play a single arc, right? Um, for, Four sessions, you go from point A to point B. The the campaign could be traveling from one city to another, and then you did it, and then you retire and yeah. move on with your lives. Um, or it could be like five years changing the world brick by brick. You know, there's a story online about a about a guy who's been playing at a campaign in his basement with a group of friends for like, I think it was like thirty some years. Wow. They're still playing the same characters. Right. And they're um, all playing like they're kids of their original characters now. <laughs> yeah, they must. Because yeah. like, who knows? Time moves differently in D&D. I couldn't do it. I couldn't play the same character for 30 no. years. There's no way. Because there's so many combinations of stuff you can be. And like the difference between someone who can cast spells and someone who can't cast spells. Like there's no 30 years. You got to really like that character. Wild. Wow. 
I'm I'm the kind of person that just like enjoys character creation so much that I have like 20 characters in on D&D Beyond just like <laughs> at the ready cuz I love it. I, I really have a ton of fun just like figuring out oh what combination of like characters could be cool and like you can you can really play archetypal archetypal what's the word? Archetypal. Arch- That's Arch- the word. Archetypical. <laughs> archetypal. That word. Archetypal. You can play archipelago. Archipelago. You can play a cappella, or you can have music. <laughs> we're getting really off the rails here. Now, now we're um, just doing stream of consciousness <laughs> bits. Archie Andrews. But you can play them in that way as like a thief who's just like a bad guy who like likes to get into houses and steal stuff. Or With you that can voice, play, obviously, right? <laughs> yeah, you have yeah, to use that voice. Yeah. Or you can really play something that's entirely different and create your own kind of uh, type of character. And that's what's the fun of this. Like, you don't have to stick to anything you don't want to do with your character either. The The campaign is, is a collection of adventures. Hmm. And they could be two adventures or they could be 30 adventures. And as Emma alluded to, usually a campaign will take place all within the sort of t- same location or the same time frame. If you, you know, if you jump, if there's no, if there's no connecting story that moves people from one city to another, if all of a sudden they're just at a, another city, it's usually not a quote unquote campaign. It's usually not like an ongoing story. And an ongoing story will build to an arc. It will build to a, a, a climax and then you know, I mean, that could then actually lead to some future climax or things could get wound up. You know, it, it could be a movie or it could be a television series. Yeah, an arc being like a season of a of a series kind of thing. Right. Oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. I like that, a season. <laughs> well, I mean, you guys have actually been really great about sort of discussing a lot of this. And I'm sure there's like so many, like it sounds like a game that can be played very um, lightly or get to an extreme depth. Um, and so I'd like to know, like, in terms of from each of your points perspective, what is, um, for you, the strength of the game that keeps bringing you back? Is it, I'm, I'm sure that there's like a lot of connections, of course, you build between your other players, like you obviously get really attached to the plot lines that are continuing. But like, what is it about the game that you think offers? What is it that, that it offers as its brightest characteristics for you or anyone else? I will go first because I already kind of touched on it. What I think that's so genius about D&D is the structure of the game. I keep using the word tricks, but that's maybe not what I want to say. Uh, maybe unlocks the, the creativity and storytelling ability of people who didn't think that they had it. Hmm. Um, an example that I always like to use is I, I, I obviously play D&D with a lot of like performative people or theater people or film people. Um, but I played one or two sessions with two of my friends who work up at the oil fields who don't consider themselves like very open, very vulnerable whatsoever. Like they're like, they have a hard time talking about their feelings. Like just these two specific dudes that I know we start the game and they, one of the guys kind of comes in with this kind of accent and he's, you know, I I love swords. I love goblins. Like he kind of comes at it like a very dismissive way. And then the accent kind of starts to fade out as he kind of just starts like listening to the story. And he, you hear him start to go, oh, and what does the what does the house look like? <laughs> like so, see, you can see him start to go, oh, I I like the world. Okay, hold on one second. And then when the DM approaches him as like one of the characters that he offhandedly joking said he knew, like his 
his mom who lives in a poor shack, the DM brings out that character and goes, how are you? And then to hear him go, I'm really good. How are you? So it's, it, and so it's just kind of, and then, which and I think this was brutal at the DM, but then that character's mom dies. No! Session two. <laughs> and you see nice. this guy, this like, like, oh and, my God. and it sounds like I'm painting kind of a stereotype, but he's in like a plaid shirt and coveralls at the moment that we're playing. <laughs> and he's like, she's dead. Like, it's just, and everyone around the table is like, oh, gotcha. This is fun. <laughs> Booyah. We're all nerds, but man, it got you. That's, <laughs> that that's my favorite part about the game of like, oh, we tricked you into feeling something and you had a blast doing it. That's, that's why I'm here for it. I'm, I'm never not charmed, double negative for you there, by a group of people sitting around and imagining together, which doesn't exist outside of like, you know, our, our little theater classes that we do, you know, where you build up years of trust with one another, just to be open enough to show your, to share your imagination in a way. Mm -hmm. And this game is like a, yeah, it's a quick backdoor entrance to imagination. And you can sit around for five hours together, imagining a story. Like when does that ever happen? Mm -hmm. And five hours, 50 hours, five years, you know, it's always charming to imagine. Or I sometimes I just sit back and think, wow, we're five adults right here, just building a world in our brains. And it's like, it has integrity. It holds. We know what's going on. We know where the other person mm -hmm. is. We're like really in it. Uh, I love that every time. Pretty close to that for me is the fact that like, once you play a game for a certain amount of time, even even like off handedly a, a one game one time you still go off and will still remember the things you did together even within the world like i still talk to my friends about like games we've played like years ago or it would like be like oh griffin do you remember when you went into this like cave and like did this really cool thing and like jumped around the walls and like we we talk about those things almost as if we did them together yeah. in yeah. real life, which is like the power again of the creativity and the imagination that these things and the, and the emotional effect that they leave on you. Cause you remember those things is like, ah, oh, that was so cool. And it was so fun. And you know, in every respect, we did do them. We yeah, had, yeah. We had the idea to do them. We were given the playground and the ability to do them. And we decided to execute the happening of it. So we did, kind of. Yeah, totally, kind of. <laughs> I would add, I would agree with everything everyone has said so far. Um, it sort of goes back to me before I started to say about the communal storytelling thing, where, as Griffin alluded to, it gets people who, I mean, we have a, as a society, <laughs> there you know, now Whoa. you know it's going to be pompous. Oh, yeah. We, Light up your we as a society, uh, have packaged up the creation of arts into a separate industry, a standalone observable thing, as opposed to an engagement thing. And D&D allows the lumberjack oil worker and all, uh, you know, the office, down, downtown office worker to dip their toe into not, not performing per se, because a lot of, a lot of times with brand new people, they won't say, 
I pick up my axe and I chop him. They'll say, my character picks up an axe and hits them. So they have one step still distant. They still have sort of that third person kind of thing. But they are getting engaged in the uh, the action and in the story despite that. So even more immersive than a, than a, a good film or an interesting TV series, you are driving, or at least partially driving the story forward and being able to have that that aspect takes it from just sort of a observable thing into something that you yourself are experiencing. Uh, my wife does a lot of teaching of improv to amateur uh, amateur theater communities and things. And one of her joys, and it's similar to me as a DM, is watching people who are tentative and uncertain and closed off, not necessarily closed off, but just tentative, start to get into it and enjoy it and see that everyone else around them is enjoying it as well. So it really, it like almost cracks open another facet or, or no, let me be fair about that. It reveals another facet of this person that they themselves are often surprised by. Now, just as a, a complete, well, not complete side, but connected anecdote. <laughs> just not about D&D at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, it's, it, tell, tell us what you had for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> I had a sandwich last Thursday. <laughs> all right. Everybody do your best. Is that it? Is that, is that all you got? <laughs> I okay, cut good. this part out when you do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, Griffin and I were at a big D&D game conference last fall down in Indianapolis. And we had no idea of the size of this. Uh, we went to this conference. Initially, when we were booking it, I was surprised that there were no hotels available. When we get there, <laughs> we find out that it's 45,000 people. Wow. Uh, and it's down from, because of COVID, it's down from the usual size, which is seventy to 80,000 people all gathered. That's that's a lot of nerds gathered together in one place. Anyway, we were at uh, the uh, the hotel heading over to this conference center where it was. It happened to be right next to a AAA baseball diamond. There was a big, a big game going on or just actually finishing off when all this D&D stuff was starting out. So I'm up on the second floor getting a coffee, like up, up, on, up on the balcony getting a coffee. And I look out and I see this. You know, it's it's quite a big street. It's probably a, a an eight lane street, and coming from one side are all of these all of these people dressed up in their baseball colors, wild wigs. You know, people are wearing the numbers of their favorite players. Everybody's got all this different you know swag or horns or all this stuff. They're all walking this way, walking to the parking lot, and coming from the other side of the crosswalk are all these like. Jedi Knights and people dressed up in wild clothes and costumes. They all got their swag and they're all dressed up like their favorite characters. And they all just sort of, you know, <laughs> cross each other. And I realized it's not that much different. And they brought out baseball bats and switchblades and all fought. <laughs> yeah. Then they all did that. Yeah. Jet. Started dancing. But it was it for both groups it's an expression of another side of themselves and it's something that they both enjoy and get immersed in even though it's stereotypically a very diverse separate distinct groups i just love the fact that they were crossing i thought the analogy of them all mixing together as they were walking across the crosswalk to be an excellent one 
So I have a question about this conference now, because it kind of relates to what was going to be one of my last questions was D&D on the larger, the larger side of the world. So, you know, like you have all these little pods of people playing their um, intimate little games. But when you go to a conference like that, so does that mean that everyone's bringing their pods to the game? Does that mean that you're suddenly joining campaigns all at once? What does it mean to be a part of that worldwide network of D&D? And are there any famous D&D people or movies? Or You're looking at some of them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's some very famous D&D players out very, there. Um, yeah. I think we're all fans here. Uh yeah, like a, a group called Critical Role is probably the most famous group. And they were a home game and they started streaming online. And now they have a D&D empire. Essentially, they have an animated TV show. They have a it's it's amazing. That's um, been, by the way, all funded by the fans, too. Like yeah. they did a Kickstarter and they wanted I think it was like 500 or a million dollars or something. And within like a week they blew past their goal and now they had like $12 million that was all thrown at them by the fans. It was insane. And there is, there is a small factor in that the most of them were at least like top tier voice actors that also had somewhat of a following, but it's far super, like it's far surpassed anything that they just got through that. It's, it's truly just like a dedicated following. Yeah. So there's lots of various Twitch streams. There's lots of various podcasts. There's lots of uh, well-known performers, even on, on YouTube, people that have you know millions of followers talking about stuff and just like any other conventional industry sometimes these conventions will have these stars show up and uh either do like chats or perform or (laughs) sign stuff like it's it's they'll play live yeah a big part of this conference was uh you know, a big part of it is a lot of like little small publishers. A lot of people will come and everybody has booths. You wander through the booths. There's, there's definitely games going on. In fact, there's a whole structured version of Dungeons and Dragons that is designed for conferences so that everybody has roughly the same power character and you actually can have, uh, not really, you can't really have competitions, but you have structured games where people go just to play. And they're much less about the role playing and much more about the sort of the tactical aspect of it. But it is, it is definitely interesting. I think Cobalt Press's booth was the best out of the whole convention. <laughs> I think Cobalt Press had the best booth. That's just, that's my, I've un- heard that too. Thoughts. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. <laughs> um, you can buy dice there, like the dice sellers, the, the terrain manufacturers, the mini people, like, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can get with this game as well. So all those people show up to conventions as well. There's the uh, those books. Uh, we all I bought a book that you can like keep track of your character and stuff. And I got the rest of them. One from a website called Everything Dice, uh, which is they sell, you know, they sell little journals. They're like journals. They also sell dice. They sell dice tray for you to roll within like a so you're not rolling in the table and they go flying type of thing. There's a lot of that stuff at, at conventions like that. Oh, that's amazing to know. Like, it's so interesting to know that this community is just so large and just like very expanding. And um, it seems very positive. Like overall, it seems like this community of D&D is like overall very encouraging, very positive, very much about like coming together. And as um, you said, Kevin, it's not really about competition. And I think that's really beautiful. Um, almost like the the philosophies our world should be moving into like this this kind of like we're all working together so it's it's really nice 
At its best, it's a collaborative game, right? It's not a competitive game. There's a little bit of push-pull between the players and the DM, but that's more like like friendly trying to do something together. You know, you have to you have to challenge one yeah. another, but it's not, not competitive. Emma and Griffin see it more as education. We're educating Kev- the Kevin's the DM. my nemesis. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, you know, somebody's got to teach you the ropes, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that aspect of it is very is very interesting, but that's part of the collaborative aspect. So, for example, one of the things is because there's so many variants of different kinds of characters you can play, I'm never going to try to learn. I'm going to trust the players to know how to play their particular character. So I'll often ask, and you probably heard me do it, all right, so how does that skill you have work? Because the skill that they will have, uh, that they want to use in this situation is never going to be perfectly adapted. But again, if I'm defaulting to it being interesting or dramatic or fun, I'm going to say, oh yeah, you can, you can do this skill this way, or you have a chance of doing this skill this way (laughs) and let them roll Mm, for it. Relying on me to explain it. That's actually, that's interesting. (laughs) Write that down. What skills can I create? I think I get, yeah, $700 every time I use this move. <laughs> yeah, when I look at my character sheet here, it says I get 700 XP for every time I hit, so. <laughs> yeah, it says Kevin owes me $20 in a burger. <laughs> so, do we cover off a lot of those things? Did we cover off a lot of the technical stuff? Because I know we were tossing in a lot of the jargon, NPCs. An NPC basically is a non-player character. So it's somebody you will interact with in the game played by me. And interact could be stab them or buy a a donut from them or propose to them. It could be anything. In Templar's case, carry you around. Uh. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Emma's character for this particular section of our game is very specific and, and somewhat unique. Uh, this is a this is a third party uh, supplement to the game. This isn't the official uh, part of the official game, but she's literally playing a sword, which I guess you probably figured out. Hopefully, you figured out. <laughs> Otherwise, we failed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is complexity turned up a bit high um, in terms of like your race class combinations, yeah. but we don't need to go into that. Well, I just remember there was a battle that happened between you, Emma, and some of the other characters, but it took quite a while. It was like, it seemed like a very complicated amount of rolling and I guess powers like not quite hitting or like, it was like quite like from listening to it, it actually felt quite action packed. It was kind of funny. (laughs) Yeah. The game has, has different components, right? There's like socializing components, there's exploring and there's combat. Uh Um, I think it's like the actual definition of the three elements of the game and combat can take a while because it time slows down you essentially go into bullet time when you roll initiative and then mm-hmm. yeah you go in turn order like what do you do what do you do reaction and it has to slow down because you're taking you're taking like in this example we have here three individuals all acting at the same time but there's no way to sort of adjudicate that or judge that simultaneously so everybody quote unquote takes a turn and it's what you're doing in that moment and which you know should may or may not coordinate with what the other two people are doing and at the same time all of the opponents that you're facing are also trying to win they don't want to die either technically the character wants to uh, the monster what that they're fighting wants to eat them or wants to run away and live right so it's it's sorting all of that out and of course there's part of it is the performing aspect because we have uh, because we are 
an audio medium, we have to have a lot of description. We have to have a lot of, you know, so we want to make sure that people are keeping up with what's going on within the fight. And also because it's audio and there's no visible map or no visible, nothing visible, I have to make sure I'm crystal clear on what's going on in the world. And so I can communicate that with the players so that they can create strategies that are effective. So if it's a, you know, if it's a drawing room in a castle, they would move and interact differently than if it's an open field or a cavern. And because some of the characters can fly, some of them can leap, some of them can teleport. And I don't know what, if any of those things they will do at any one time. Yeah, it does take, it will take a minute. Um, I use, or I'm going to actually use more of uh, some online software to literally track the positions of people and things because we can't do it literally. Say, okay, well, yes, you can make it there or no, that, that person is too far away or that creature is too far away for you to leap through the air and, you know, drive your sword through their gullet. Yes, that sounds like a great plan, but you leap through the air and you land about six feet short and the dragon just looks at you <laughs> condescendingly. <laughs> that that kind of that that kind of stuff. But by the same token, I'm not gonna well, I'm often well, I'm sometimes not gonna let them discover that. I'm gonna say, no, you they look like they're pretty it's too far away for you to try that. That kind of thing. But yes, combat can drag. There's definitely, that is a DM, that's a sort of a perennial DM concern, because especially if you have a lot of players, like uh, some of the games I play, we have six players, so it takes a long time for everybody to decide an action. And of course, they all want to talk about their action before they do it, and they all want to strategize, even though it's supposedly only six seconds, they'll take 30 minutes to discuss it. Blah, so. blah, blah. <laughs> So it is, it is, yeah, it's creating a radio play every week. Oh, that's interesting. And we don't, it's, it's improvising a radio play every week is actually what it is. Oh, I love that. That sounds so magical, actually. It sounds like the way you all speak about it actually sounds like a really great way to spend some time with people. Um, it sounds very magical. Uh, that's all I can say. <laughs> Honestly, that's been the majority of my socializing over the pandemic, yeah. uh, which I love, you know, it, it, I see my friends almost weekly for a good chunk of time. We commit to each other's imaginations and fun. And then <laughs> bye. See you next week. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and in the podcast, you don't get that. But there's obviously a lot of socializing before and after a game where people are talking about stuff and, and sidetracks, right? The other thing you'll hear in the podcast is when we sidetrack for 10 minutes talking about <laughs> whatever favorite sandwich or whatever else is sort of popped into people's heads in the moment. Griffin loves that. Really beautiful though. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. For anyone who's not on the discord, Emma went ahead and found that picture of David Suzuki. <laughs> oh, as Adam. First reference. I also looked up that picture. I was like David Suzuki's buff. <laughs> I, I do so really good. like the tangents in any kind of D&D media. I think that's what separates one D&D media from another D&D media. And that's how you get to know the actual people is the tangents. Yeah, yeah there is that um, balance between getting to know the characters and getting to know the players, at yeah. both from inside the game. And if you're listening in a performative medium like this, like I love listening to other people play because you get to know them on both levels. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you have to kind of get to know the 
people because then when the season ends and they're new characters, you want them to stay invested. So yeah, yeah. And also that that is an interesting thing because that that is what actually distinguishes it from a radio play. It's like showing up behind the scenes and the radio play at the same time. It's striking that balance between watching the Marvels, you know, watching the Avengers and watching the actors play the Avengers. It's like going to a live taping of Friends. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know what I thought of that. <laughs> no, Although, that's right. No, how, how old were you when that was? That was got you uh, were like, like three were years probably, old, probably. You probably got kicked out because you were too loud. <laughs> All the critical hits that happened in Friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I mean, at this point, I feel like I'm almost like wanting to like be like, okay, maybe I actually need to you try You want to play it. You know, you like. Do. <laughs> you do. Yeah, it answers so many questions. Truly. We know. We know you want to really play. Does. Yeah. There we go. We add another one. Here's the pamphlet. <laughs> the, the, the way to recruit. That's it, right. It just sounds like the most beautiful game that literally has almost like nothing that's holding it down. But in some ways, it's manifested such a beautiful way of constructing such a tangible way to like interact. And actually, I love this a concept of like you're just asking people to embody imagination. And especially in today's world where everything's so literal and so scary, like I just can't imagine a better therapeutic outlet for all of us to just have some time where we just get to be imaginative and feel that as best as we can through ourselves. And um, that's really beautiful to me. So, so thank you for sharing this oh, time. Now we're pressured. Am I going to cry? I might cry. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there almost needs to be like a, like a D and D like a philosophy of life. Like what, you know, 10 points that you get out of the philosophy towards your own life, like what you can get from this kind of structure of, of interacting. Um, yeah. there, there's actually a, a really cool analogy about, you know, like, uh, you know, have, if anyone of you has heard of the spoon analogy, there's, uh, there's this analogy about spoons where like, for example, uh, some activities, for example, will take more spoons out of your day than others for like, in terms of like anxiety or depression or things like that. And so you have, let's say five spoons, for example, for the day. And a shower takes two spoons, you know, or whatever. A good analogy for that that I've heard is with spell slots. Um, about like a shower takes three of your spell slots per day for someone who's a magic user. They have a certain amount of spells that they can cast. So that's, it, it, yeah, it has so many life utilities as well. Like it's, it's just a cool game. By spell slots, he means that's sort of the way to limit or, or con- crystallize what <laughs> yeah. spells you have if you're a wizard or a spell casting creature. Yeah, D&D has used, been used as a vehicle for all sorts of people to express themselves in all sorts of ways. And and certainly in the last few years, it's certainly uh, come to sort of typify the openness or opening of society. Is that is that a fair way to phrase it? You guys... <laughs> Not you really know because you've all just been playing for the last few years, but it's it's that uh, it's that idea of it's sort of certainly been a, a forerunner. It's certainly it, it's popularized or or made acceptable. Maybe you know, there's a lot of people who uh, come out with really you know they use it to express their new identity or discovering new sides about themselves because the the concept is since D and D is all a fantasy world. Anyway, if you are, if you want to be this personality or you feel you are this personality, this is a perfect way to sort of try out expressing it before you 
manifest it more in your in your life. So there is certainly that, or at least from what I see, you know, out out there on media, I see that as being a bigger and bigger thing. It's a bit of like a nice way to look inside yourself as well, you know? I mean, what we're doing on the podcast is more sort of a performing version of it. So uh, the some of the choices we're doing are geared to make it more entertaining as opposed to if we were just sitting around a kitchen table playing the game. And whether that's actions or or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have all of those connections happening. And we're still obviously legitimately having fun and that kind of thing. But it's like, it's sort of the next level of D&D playing. And I think if there's any downside to the things like Critical Role or, or any of these really popular things, is that it's made people think they have to be better performers mm. to play the game. Like uh, uh, one of my new players, she didn't want to play because she couldn't do accents, right? So that it creates this kind of, it, it makes it popular, but it also sort of defines it. And it took her a while to accept the fact that she didn't need to do accents to be able to play the game. So she sort of felt pressure. But that's that's a small side effect. It Obviously, there's lots of very positive things around all that kind of exploration. And yeah, it is about being magical for sure. But thank you so much. This has been great, actually. Thank you so much for all just making the time. Um, I feel very inspired, actually, for out of all this. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Yay. I mean, we, we yeah. set aside time to do this all the time. So thank you for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was great that you'd come in, Elaine. Appreciate you, you sort of leaping on and being brave and embracing all of the things you didn't know so that you can be the voice of the people who are of listening that don't unknown, know. Of the unconverted. <laughs> I, would, I would be interested in talking with you again if and when you do try it for the first time. Just yeah, to see how, Emma up. <laughs> how that went for you. Yeah. 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 Do you have any plugs you want to toss in? Are you a social media kind of person? Oh, social, uh, like um, just like things in my world? Yeah. People want to learn more about you. Ah. Uh, um, well, actually, I think I have some things that could, for your kind of audience, would maybe cross over quite well. So I, uh, I'm i the co-director of what's called CAMP, the Canadian Academy of Mask of Puppetry. And so we're constantly putting on workshops in terms of like, uh, right now we have three skill workshops in puppet building. Um, and I just released yesterday my... I'm so excited about it. It's a clown workshop, two clown workshops that are going to happen in August um, mm. called Clown Life. And to me, this is like such a crossover where clown is all about uh, imaginative embodiment. You do not have to be a clown in order to partake, partake in it. But I think it's like one of the most amazing life experiences and of, of creative, imaginative authenticity that you can give yourself. So um, I would definitely check that out. And then... Uh, in March, coming up in March, there's the Festival of Animated Objects, which I'm going to be premiering a puppet show. So, Ooh. Festival of Animated Objects is a very, very cool festival. I'll be putting I'll be yeah. putting camp and festival links in the podcast description. Yeah. Where Where are you located, Elaine? What city? Calgary. Sorry, oh, <laughs> Calgary, Mackenzie. No, no, that's all right. I might have <laughs> missed it. I don't know. No, sorry, I forgot. Like that, we might not all be in the same. But um, a lot of these workshops are for anyone. So, like Western Canadian artists from all over, kind of really um, come sometimes come in for these workshops. So. Um, I'm very excited to also spread the magic of mask puppetry and clown to all the people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Diego, hit us with some of your handles. Hey, uh, you, well, you can follow me on Instagram at Diego Streddle, or you can follow me on Twitter at D-I-I underscore Streddle, or you can follow me on TikTok, too. Uh, a, a video game that I've been working on has uh, is about to wrap real soon. And can you say it yet, or do we have to keep it quiet? I We still have to keep it quiet. I don't, oh. haven't, I, we, yeah, nothing has been announced or anything, but... Um, I'm very excited to get to talk to you all about it because it's super cool. I think this is the first mention of you doing the video game, so that's yeah, very is. exciting. Emma, handles. Uh, I'm at Cinderemma B on the internet, but uh, I, I'm not really always there. But you can watch. Um, I'll plug a play that I'm working on in Calgary as well, at Steel Magnolias at Theatre Calgary, which I'm very excited to be working on. We're going back to live theatre, and I'm thrilled. Kevin, I will say that if people have other questions, I want them to feel free to post it to us on Facebook or Twitter or on our Discord channel. Uh, our website is diascast.com. Uh, there is going to be more uh, DM blogs happening there, um, but we want to hear from everybody and we want to hear about questions and we want to hear compliments. <laughs> yes, we uh, we brought Elaine on the show from a Facebook comment. So rest assured, we do like check our social medias. You can hop on the Discord. You can email me any thoughts or questions or concerns uh, at griffin at dieascast.com. Uh, you can follow me on any platforms at Griffin Cork. Join the Discord. Check out the site, and uh, we will see you next week for episode 22 with Templar's Verge. Thanks, everybody, for Table Talk episode 3, and thank you so much, Elaine. Thank you. We'll see you next week.